and welcome back to the third season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Heath Saunders. Heath is an actor, composer, multi-instrumentalist, and diversity dramaturg. They were recently featured on the original cast recording of Duncan Sheik and Stephen Sater's new musical, Alice by Heart. And in 2018, they appeared in Jesus Christ Superstar at the Lyric Opera of Chicago as Jesus and in Jesus Christ Superstar Live in concert on NBC. They made their Broadway debut in Great Comet, and their musical Newton's Cradle won Best in Fest at Nymph 2016. Their EP, Does Not Play Well with Others, I Hope You're Not Others, can be heard wherever you stream music. We're going to talk today about the illusion of the everyman in musical theater. Hi Heath, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Well, we are going to get started with our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? Oh gosh, I think it it was probably um, so I was in a a weird musical adaptation of Johnny Appleseed when I was like in like third grade or something. It was a while ago, and but I it's weird because I, I when I was trying to think about what the the answer to this question I I. When I was in Johnny Appleseed, I, like, didn't register that what I was doing was a musical. Like, it was like, oh, I was just, you know, going on stage and I had to sing when I... Because I was, like, in, you know, children's choirs and stuff. So, like, I it didn't occur to me that what I was doing was different than that. So it's weird to think about, like, what my first experience with a musical where I knew that the thing I was watching was, in fact, a musical. Because I also, like, you know, I grew up with... um the vinyl record of like Jesus Christ Superstar like I knew Jesus Christ Superstar and it's it's a funny thing that I like think about retrospectively because I like now I know that I know Jesus Christ Superstar but I was like how did I actually learn this oh it's been like playing around me since I was very young but I think that my first like experience being like oh this is musical theater and that's what I'm watching was probably in seventh grade because my very very astute band teacher because I got into music through band I played oboe and cello and saxophone and stuff um and he had this whole thing where he he basically was like Mr. Brandman shout out Mr. Brandman uh, Mr. Brandman was like if you want to make a career being a musician a really great way to do that is playing in the pits of musicals so as part of the his uh, like syllabus every year he would play one of the classic movie musicals. So we saw Fiddler on the Roof and My Fair Lady and West Side Story. And incidentally, my ninth grade year, when he played West Side Story for us, that there was a community theater doing West Side Story around and they needed little brown kids. So we were like, okay, well, I guess we'll go and audition for a musical. So like that, like my journey towards like understanding what musical theater is, was very roundabout. I was like, but I did do Johnny Appleseed when I was a child. That's the real answer. (laughs) which musical has had the greatest impact on you now that would probably have to be jesus christ superstar both because 
my relationship with it runs for a long time and I've also done it several times in several different capacities and I really love the show and like it you know I, I cite doing Jesus Christ Superstar I, I played Jesus in Chicago at the Chicago Lyric and for me that that performance was like a huge uh, breakthrough for me about like what it means to perform in musicals so in addition to this being this show that I like knew and that I love it also is like was the show that gave me this opportunity to explore performance in a new way which was really crazy so probably that one (laughs) what's a musical people might be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised this is a tough one so I, I think that I would have to say, well, like, the, like sh- shows that I love unironically are like, I like love The Lion King, which I think might surprise people because it's a Disney show and I have a bit of a anti-capitalist streak in me. So that, that seems like a strange choice for me. But I, you know, that which is the, the thing that is, um, I just think that the sort of the, artistic and holistic achievement of that musical is so like dauntingly powerful i just was like that's amazing but i think that another musical that people would be really shocked that i really enjoyed i've only seen it once and i've never listened to it so i but i'd like really enjoyed american psycho (laughs) and the reason i liked it a lot is because i it was like the first new musical i'd seen in a very long time that like rejected all notion of like this is what a musical is supposed to be it was very much like didn't make any sense i was i just like was like delighted by how ambitious and weird it was what's your favorite musical that no one else has heard of it would be shocking that i would have a favorite musical that lit i don't think anybody else had heard of so i would basically take this opportunity to plug like my friend nico benson who i think is like one of the best musical theater writers and that, you know, people haven't necessarily heard of, although he has a vague following on Twitter and YouTube. I would go with Nikola Tesla Drops the Beat by Nico Benson. I just think it's, well, and Ben, ben Halstead, Nico Benson and Ben Halstead. And I think that they're a really cool team, really ambitious. What older or classic musical did you recently see for the first time? And what was your experience with it? Uh... This is a really cool question for me. I'm like very anti-classic shows as a general rule, um, largely because I think that they they hinge on a sort of weird, deep-seated sense of nostalgia that I think is really unhelpful for anyone living their life in any context. But I do. I sort of want to. I, I I thought about a story that was really interesting because I saw I saw Phantom of the Opera for the first time. Like four or five years ago and it was weird because i like when everybody like gives phantom of the opera flack for being like phantom of the opera and uh, i when i saw it i was mostly just like very much struck by the extraordinary musical theater storytelling at play in it like i was like this is a a mate like as far as like giant machines go this is pretty incredible like you get 
And it's like I, the thing, the other. There's things that I look for in performances. Like I don't particularly care for like hyper wooden, uninteresting acting performances. And and I think that that Phantom of the Opera sort of limits their. Um, it sort of limits the 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 sort of kinds of variety an actor can bring to it because they're you know they're like things like oh now you must lift this hand on this lyric and that's the thing and like I get that but and but that for me like doesn't make for particularly interesting acting performances so I wasn't really shocked that I wasn't particularly taken by the humanity in it but I was really taken by the stagecraft I was like this is just really good Hal Prince knew what he was doing yeah, I saw Phantom of the Opera as an adult as well, and it was just a weird, you know, seeing it at a different time in one's life from when people, a lot of people see it as kids, and it's it's a very adult piece, I think, and, um, you know, it's just a different perspective one has at different ages. Well, great. Um, let's move on to our topic which is the illusion of the everyman, along with equity, diversity, and inclusion in theater. I think it's cool that, you know, we're doing another uh, episode about the everyman. We had one other one, um, you know, before the summer hiatus, and it's like we're kind of doing a series on the everyman. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, in in our early sort of back and forth, I talked about racism in musical theater and and actually what's funny is that this this topic for me is actually a a tricky lateral entry into the conversation about racism in musical theater because it actually is reframing the way that we talk about identity and that for me is the thing that's like the the key to unlocking new kinds of storytelling surrounding uh identity so racial identity and and sexuality and gender and so on and so forth and i think that in order to get at it you actually have to start sort of from the by dismantling the sort of things that we we accept as true um yeah i you know i i started this by basically being like i'm going to talk about pippin and because pippin is this like you know classic hero's journey arc every man he like does the thing and then goes Toward, I mean, I mean, I I throw the word out every man, and I throw the 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 hero's journey out, and and I assume that are you, you're familiar with the the concept of the every man? How how would you define it if you were like required to? Yeah, um, I think I would define the every man as you know a a general uh, kind of protagonist character who's kind of a stand-in for the audience in a way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the sort of neutral character, right? It's like the stock character. Yeah, and I think sometimes I've seen them with uh, no personality. Sometimes I've seen them with a personality. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I, I think that that has a lot to do with genre. I think in action movies, every man, the every man, the person who the audience is meant to identify with as a on, on the whole is tends to be somebody who's sort of devoid of personality traits because we want to sort of like watch ourselves live out through them vicariously. Um, you know, it's, what, what's interesting about the everyman is that everyman actually was, you know, the, the concept of it is actually born out of an English morality play from the 15th century, which is this thing called the summoning of the everyman. 
And the summoning of the everyman was essentially just a Christian morality play that was like, a guy goes through things to get to salvation, basically. And it was like, these are the things that go through. And and the intention of it calling the character, the character is literally called everyman, which is quite literally just meaning all people, right? Yeah, every, every person uh, is meant to identify with the everyman. Um, and I think that this is a really interesting thing that we accept as a stock character. Like we, we as a whole, as a culture, as a community of theater makers, we tend to think of it as like, you know, this ordinary, humble protagonist who's like, that's who the audience gets. And the, you know, sort of my, my first, the first sort of place that I want to, that, that I was, I'm going to sort of get to is that like, the everyman, what we define as the everyman defines what we, impl- what is implied neutrality and implied neutrality defines the audience that you're actually working with. So one of the things that we talk about in diversity and equity and inclusion in theater is like, we want more black people on stage. But the challenge is that it's not really just black people because if we're, if we're, we don't, we want to diversify the sense of the everyman in the story so that the everyman isn't always a cisgendered straight white male because that's that's just the the, the neutrality surrounding that that stock character we think neutral we think wide audience and we think straight white cisgender male which is just sort of a weird thing uh we'll get into that a little bit more in in a moment uh the second thing is the hero's journey right which i again is probably a thing you've heard about yeah, I've uh, seen it a few times in my writing classes. Yeah, it's it's. It, what's funny is that it was it's actually uh, from a psychoanalyst, right, Joseph Campbell, who is a religious, a comparative religions uh, professor, and he. What What's funny about it is that it's actually not a writing technique, although like it has evolved into a writing technique. We talk about the hero's journey when we're sort of studying character arc, but. It's actually an analysis technique, so it's actually looking back at a bunch of things. Because again, as, you know, Joseph Campbell is a, a a religious scholar, and he actually coined this phrase when he was assessing the sort of myth, the the sort of monomyth that occurs across religions, right? So basically, he's like looking at all of these myths and saying they all follow this structure, this uh, arc, as it were. And we have sort of change that into like when we write shows we're going to like write them into an arc and that that arc was going to be the thing that we we do but again it's actually not a writing technique it's an analysis uh which is an important differentiation which again we will will come up in a bit uh joseph campbell literally defines it as as uh, a hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder fabulous forces are there encountered are there encountered and a device decisive victory is won the hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man um what's sort of wonderful about this again you can start start to see this 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 world that i'm structuring that i'm like okay so there's this every man which all people that's which we sort of becomes the hero of the story. And then that story, that hero goes through an arc to come back and give something to the people who that person has access to. Um, so the, 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 the hero's journey has basically 17 stages, which I actually do not want to get to, into at all. And it's been reassessed like over and over and over again. And, and 
by all means, people should go and, and research it. But basically, it's there's three stages of the uh, of the monomyth of the hero's journey, which is basically departure, initiation, and then return. So any character uh, goes like leaves the space that's their space of comfort. They journey through a set of trials, and then they come back, and they're like, I've learned something. Very simple. Um, there's been a lot of criti criticism about the, eth the, the sort of ethnocentrism of this particular way of assessing m the myths around the world, because essentially Joseph the problem is, of course, Joseph Campbell's like looking at all of these myths around the world that, you know, in all of these different religions, and then basically being like, these all are follow this arc and un, again un, there's a this happened in he, he coined this phrase in 1949 so this it's been there's been a lot of evolution about what that that concept is and how we sort of how it applies but it is there's a couple of like important ones that i want to sort of point to when it comes to storytelling which are uh in 1977 there was a sort of sense of the american monolith that was coined by robert jewett and john sheldon lawrence and that they basically redefined the hero's journey as the, within the the American monomyth, which is like basically they say uh, a community is in a harmonious paradise, which is threatened by evil. Normal institutions fail to contend with this threat, so a selfless superhero emerges to renounce temptations and carry out a redemptive task. Aided by fate, his decisive victory restores the community to its paradisiacal paradisiacal. That's a word. Uh, condition. Uh, the superhero then recedes into obscurity, and that's sort of the American monolith, uh, the monomyth, and that's a that is actually a, a response to the hero's journey as defined by Joseph Campbell. So it's like there's this evolution of of analysis. Again, it's always important to remember that this is not a forward-looking uh, thing. It's actually an analysis of the uh, and 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 the American monomyth is really important to me when it comes to assessing, again, today, assessing diversity and inclusion in storytelling, because the American monolith is has sort of an inherent uh, racist and sexist bent to it. You'll notice that all of the, the language that's folded into these, these definitions by these people are dominated by maleness. And that maleness is, you know, that's, that's a huge uh, central tenet of storytelling in America. And by definition, which we can, you know, speak to because American musical theater is in fact a in deeply inherently American art form, this is actually what what sort of has birthed into what we now know. So there's like a number of people have keep they keep taking these concepts, the hero's journey and, and, and they, they like the American monomyth and they, they we've we've over time have focused our criticism on on american stories and sort of stories uh, well western uh western cultural stories and 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 we sort of look at those and we're like okay these are what these things are so then we when we move forward when we look to write things we sort of want to apply these and again i'm jumping so many steps there are people who have uh, assessed these things in all of these sort of different ways i'm trying to sort of speed through this so we can get to the interesting conversations about modern musicals um, but one of the th sort of the the, the last uh, reference point that I sort of want to point to is is Dan Harmon, who famously did Community and like Rick and Morty, uh, developed a way of talking about the hero's journey. And again, this is specifically decided by the hero's journey, what what he calls a story circle. And the story circle is basically an eight step character arc. 
and that is basically like a character's step one a character's in a zone of comfort or familiarity step two they desire something step three they en uh, enter an unfamiliar situation step four they adapt to that situation step five they get that which what they wanted step six they pay a heavy price for it step seven they return to their familiar situation step eight they have changed as a result of that journey that circle is basically how we tell stories in american uh art basically there's this it's a very simple this is how we define a character arc so a character like knows themselves and then they want something different and then journey they get it and they're like changed that's like <laughs> that's like very simply what uh, a character arc is and and again so you can look at i've, I've given these sort of three examples that are like these spaces of analysis but and you can see how it's actually shifting from an, an, an analytical, uh, pure analytical, which is the hero's journey sort of language, which is about these like big myths around the world, to story circle, which is actually a character-driven assessment of what a character might want or need in any given moment. So when we tell a story about a character, a char any character goes to this arc. So we've, ba we've basically taken this giant thing and focused it into a thing that we can sort of recreate in the creation of musicals, or really the creation of any storytelling, but specifically we're going to reference musicals. So, when we get to a piece like Pippin, which is a sort of remarkable, uh, neutral platform, it's like a it's like a very simple musical in the sense that there's like really one character. That character goes through a very very clean hero's journey, and then and it really follows that quite literally, like. You know, we basically have this guy, Pippin, wants to be fulfilled. He sings a song, Corner of the Sky. He's like, I'm gonna find it. Yay, me. Everything has its season, everything has its time. Show me a reason, and I'll soon show you a rhyme. Cats fit on the windowsill, children fit in the snow. Why do I feel I don't fit in anywhere I go? Rivers belong where they can ramble Eagles belong where they can fly I've got to be where my spirit can run free Gotta find my corner of the sky Then we basically get a bunch of scenes of him trying things Right, he like he like goes to war, and then he like has an orgy, and then he like murders his dad, and and then he like does politics, and then he's like does art, and then he does religion, and he's like still not satisfied because he didn't find his corner of the sky or whatever. And anyway, he like goes through this, and he like finds you know he goes and meets Catherine, who's which we can. I'm not actually going to focus this on the, on the sort of problematic nature of Catherine, but that sort of falls into the manic pixie dream girl sort of trope, where it's like this woman is a little kooky, and her kookiness is what brings him out of his downs, which is like whatever. But and actually, in in the in the original Joseph Campbell's he hero's journey, one of the stages, one of the seventeen stages, is like temptation by women, which is like are you kidding <laughs> but of course they're not and that's that's the the thing but then you know pippin comes back at the end and is like i you know what an ordinary life is an extraordinary life which is like 
okay. But again, the, the, my point is not that this is that Pippin is good or bad. It's mostly that it follows a very, very simple plot structure, following a character in a sort of very linear, like, yay, I want something, I sort of get it, it's not what I thought it was, now I know something more about myself, which is, like, cool. The reason that I think Pippin is a really interesting uh, entry point for this conversation is that, that Pippin is... Pippin actually is, for me, is actually a, 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 there's a pivot that happens in Pippin as a story. And I don't think that Pippin is the first show to do this, or in fact, the first story to do this. I just think it's an interesting uh, reference point, because Pippin is really about identity. It's about a person wanting to find who they are, um, in a very, very literal sense, right? Like, this is a, and, and when you apply the hero's journey arc, to a story about identity, it tells us some really weird things about identity. Like if you think about it too much, it gets really sketchy. And the sketchiness is actually born out of the first archetype, which is the everyman. So if we apply stories of identity to uh, this sort of hero's journey arc to a story of identity, and you don't have an established neutrality which is to establish what the everyman is, which is like what every person, quote unquote, is, which in this context is, of course, cis, straight, white man. But this is what we're all, we're all required to relate to this thing. Basically, every person, their, their identity as a variation on that operates as their, essentially their trial. And when they come, they go through their trials of their identity, they come back, their return, is actually put into this space where they're like, you know what? I'm okay with who I am. Then that's basically the story of all all stories of identity. And what's funny is that I would argue that this the reason that this is dominated in theater the way that it is is because actually the story of gay maleness. So the story of gay maleness from the story of health, like from a story of like the well-being of the people is is basically uh, divided into those same three things, the departure, the initiation, and the return, which is basically like, the departure is I'm experiencing desire that I don't know what to do with. The initiation is the exploration of what that desire is, and like going through, again, from a sexual perspective, this is like psychosexual, you're like, oh, great, so now you're exploring what it means to engage in that sort of behavior, and then the return is actually coming out. So we basically, the return is like, you know what, this is who I am and I feel good about this. And again, the, the challenge with this thing is that that arc isn't actually how identity works in life. It is only a really good story. And what and there's actually been tons and tons of literature written since then, but most specifically, probably most famously, with a book called The Velvet Rage, where they actually where where he talks about moving the that arc to the thing that happens after you come out. Because it's like, what, there's no, once you sort of get to your, your end, what happens then, right? Like, what are, you, what are you supposed to do once you get it? Um, and the fact of the matter is that there's really, you just keep living life. Like life is like a, again, life is like a story circle in the sense that you just like keep going through these sort of arcs over and over and over again. And, you know, as a sort of pivot or a sort of side note, my, one of my one a show that I really really enjoy is Into the Woods, and I think Into the Woods actually starts to criticize this story pretty effectively because it basically is like, here's how fairy tales go, and they're like, what happens 
after the fairy tale. Like there's too much, there's too much darkness and too much complexity in the world to think that once you have your return, that everything's going to be fine. You sort of recognize that it's actually significantly more complicated, and that's one of the joys that I have about Into the Woods. Of course, Into the Woods naturally our protagonist of Into the Woods operates as the baker, who is in fact a straight white male. He doesn't have to be white, and he doesn't have to be straight. Well, he should be straight. He wants a child with his wife. But like, none of those things are actually required. That's just sort of like our given neutral. Our everyman follows these arcs, and this is how we sort of tell these stories. Because like, again, you can start to see how, how these stories, the way that we assess stories, creates this world in which we're we're constantly analyzing things as uh, vectors off of this sort of central everyman story so the problem or sort of my 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 sort of general conclusion with all of this is that like there actually isn't we have to remember that there isn't such a thing as neutrality there is not a neutral audience member who's going to understand things all the time this the the wake the white patriarchy has defined neutrality in storytelling as a very specific thing and all spaces all characters who exist outside of that neutrality must grapple with their identity in relation to that neutrality and all of the hero's journeys that we basically tell right now are that story even even uh Basically, so the, the problem becomes that this, this uh, space of comfort, which is the, the, in the American monomyth, that sort of harmonious community, becomes a space of whiteness and a space of maleness and a space of heterosexuality and a space of cisness. And we're, that's the neutrality that people are leaving to sort of return to, to bring their new education, their like boons that they can provide the society, which is sketchy. So it's like, how do you, what are you supposed to do about that? Like, how do you, how do you unpack that when you're creating, when you're telling new stories? How do you challenge that notion? And I do not know a good answer for it. Because, I, I mean, it's funny, because like, even, like, you've talked to uh, Michael R. Jackson, who I think is brilliant, and like, I again, hugely, huge, like, really, really fascinating. I, Strange Loop, which... Pulitzer Prize winning Strange Loop. What's remarkable for me about Strange Loop is that it actually falls into this structure pretty aggressively, which is like the blackness and the queerness and of the main character is the dominant storytelling engine of the show. And there, it's the dominant storytelling engine of the show because blackness and queerness in relation to white, the white male the white patriarchy that is the thing that creates the the arc of the show right it's like about coming to the space space of comfort it's the desire to sort of be part of that space the 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 departure right we go into the space where then there's like the trials of self and then the coming out is the space of like i am who i am and that's all that i can be which again there's something amazingly deliciously universal about strange loop i'm not, I'm not this is this is this is not a criticism of thinking that it's bad it's just interesting for me because i at the end of the day what we're looking at is still we're still dealing with the lens problem which is like what is neutrality and why is neutrality what it is and can we confront it 
Can we change that? Can we as creators, and I think that actually Michael R. Jackson says this really, really smartly, right? He talks about the fact that diversity has to be driven by writers, the people, because they're the people who are actually, you know, they, we can't shift our lens, really. All that we can really do is write from our perspective, and that if we are literally looking to sort of create a space of equity and diversity and inclusion, the only real way to do that is by having the people who are sort of creating the things, the people who are sort of in control of the way that these things are developed, are people who are not or or are variations off of our sort of everyman that dominates the story. So now, uh, so what now? Do we do we just do we get rid of the hero's journey? I don't know. I I think the thing is that what's hard is that wh- what I think we'll have to do is depart from it. I'm, my, my big thing is that like the trick of making new art is not coming up with new things. I don't think. I, I'm like, I've been saying this a lot recently, but one of the things that I've, I've sort of articulated about what I want to do as an artist and what I'm, I'm interested in is, is uh, the, the artist as hacker. Uh, and, I'm, and I mean a hacker in the sort of most literal sense of the word, like a hacker is somebody who takes a system that is designed to do one thing and uses it and exploits it to do something else. And for me, that's what artists do. We actually take systems and we use them to tell different stories. We say, this is the system that you've set up, but what about this thing? And for me, that's the importance and that for me is the that that's the importance of a of a show like Strange Loop because I think Strange Loop is actually like a great piece of hacking. It's basically saying here's the world that you understand, but what if you look at it this way? And that for me is what I think artists are should be called to do. That's what I I I'm like we so it's not that I want to throw away the hero's journey. It's that the the hero's journey is an assessment tool right we know this is like all of these things so now that we know those things how can we hack it so that it tells different stories how can we how can we upend how can we twist around the things that exist to tell new different innovative things and right and that that's for me where it's like there's all these variables and like one of the big variables is just change who's doing the telling because even if that will it will just change it because that's that's the nature of humanity and we you know we are all affecting each other all the time and that's the hope i think so to sort of specifically answer the question i no i don't think we should throw out the hero's journey i just think that we need to be very conscious of what it is we're doing when we use it because it's not it is not the only way to tell stories and that's the sort of challenge with academia and writing academia is that it tends to be like here's how storytelling works and i'm like what you mean is here's how storytelling has worked and that's that that is a different thing right and that's that is to remember that is like the only the only reason that history is important is so that we can continue to hack it yeah you said something really interesting before about what happens next like what happens after and it just made me think about you know, that's something else that can change, you know, in our storytelling where we focus on, you know, what happens after the return, I guess, sort of like what Into the Woods was doing, where we, you know, don't focus on one, you know, individual journey of, you know, 
a journey and return, but, you know, looking at also what happens next. Uh, I'm really interested in, in sci-fi as like a, you know, like I, I alluded to the fact that I'm like a genre nerd. I like really like genre pieces largely because they are the systems that are most established, which makes them the sort of most fun to hack for me, where you're like working within the, the bounds of a, a system that's well, well defined. And sci-fi for me is is really cool because sci-fi is all about like creating an imaginary world and then like having it, you're just like setting up a really, really clear system and then sort of messing with it. Um, and I, and I, I actually think that, you know, on a total, total tangent, I'm, I'm big into uh, a number of people talk about the fact that like emancipation or like freedom or 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 uh equity is actually a form of sci-fi storytelling because essentially what you're doing is you're you're pitching a future and then like saying like this is how you you get to that future like that like activism at core is in fact science fiction which i just think is brilliant i mean octavia butler parable of the sower like that that kind of sort of is like this is it's not unrealistic. It's like that's the that's the sort of the imagination is the thing that makes it fascinating. I want to um, circle back to Pippin for a bit because uh, one thing that strikes me about that show is that it's set so far back in time from us that we it, it's kind of set in this simple time where, like, I'm sure really at that time there was a lot going on. It wasn't as simple as we perceive it and like in 2000 years or a thousand years people will look back at this time and and uh you know also see it as a simple time you know but um yeah because it's set in this in this you know time it 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 sort of creates like a a blank slate um in a way well, and I would take that even one step further, which is to say that it's not just that it's set in this like weird ahistorical history. It's also set inside of a play, right? Like it, the players are telling the story. Like in the revival, they did it in a circus. And, and what that does is it actually sets up, it basically says the rules here are quite simple. This is like, there's a, there's a hero He's going to do this thing. He wants this thing. And it, and the show is actually remarkably self-aware about it because the leading player quite literally is like, this is what's going on. It's like there is no, there's no, nothing hidden here, which I think is actually, again, tangentially is like a, is like a deeply theatrical thing to do that there's no, there's like any time you see it, like you can see the strings. Look, this is not magic, but you know, we've got magic to do is the sort of energy of it. So it ends up with this, this like, Again, it's it's playing that I think you're you're really really right when it's like the setting it in this historical time is about distancing the audience from the thing, but everything about it is actually oriented towards doing that. It's oriented towards simplifying our sense of that sort of primary character, simplifying this sense of every man to the space of sort of this extreme neutrality. And it's like you could be Pippin, and what's really interesting is that Pippin used to end the way that the the show used to end was it was like he chose to not go into the fire and he chose not to set himself on fire because he's like, maybe an ordinary life is fine for me, right? That That is the sort of end of it. That was changed to, they, you know, he, he and Catherine and Theo are there, Theo the child and Catherine, his wife-like figure. They, and now 
Pippen and the Catherine leave, and the leading player and the players con- con- like congeal around Theo, which is the sort of implication that the cycle continues, right? Like it's like oh, there's this rolling thing, and again, very cool. Much more. That's much more twenty. 2000s than it is the 70s because in the 70s it was like no we did it and now we're very much interested in like what happens next and like so that 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 rolling sense of the circle happens i continue to challenge the fact that in the story of pippin it is pippin the ostensibly white male protagonist passes on the story to the ostensibly white male child Right. So the the neutrality remains the same. Like if you for me it's like if you really wanted to upend that thing in, in at the end of Pippin and you really felt like it was important to keep Pippin white for some reason, you, the very least you could do is make Theo not a reflection a literal reflection of Pippin because when you do that, you you know, you've now created point A and point B and both point A and point B point to the same every man and that's not great. Because that, it just makes it, so it's like, okay, so another white dude is going to go through his little everyman journey, and that's going to be the thing of it. And it's like how, and it's wild, because that, that this doesn't even go into the fact that, like, the leading player being black, and, like, the sort of manipulation of the thing, like, the leading player is not your friend, really. You, like, can't, it's, it's like an extreme magical negro archetype which is the notion that a magical negro like comes in and helps this white man go through his journey it's very much that and it's like made almost more extreme by having it be a black woman like by in the revival like we we, it's like yay now patina miller is amazing and is doing this thing but again it leans into this same story of every man which is like neutrality looks like this and craziness looks like everything else it's just like we got to be very careful about how we engage bodies in those contexts because the, the story that we end up telling, the sort of meta story, the bigger story, ends up being this like, wait, what are you saying about women? Like, what are we saying about black bodies? What, what, what is this actually saying? And, and it's important for me because like, Pippin is really interesting because I, I would argue that there is only one character in Pippin. There's like, there is Pippin and then there is nothing else like everything else is set up for pippin's experience and for pippin's arc and that's fine i think that's that's a very strong and valid storytelling choice but again if we take we we, uh, comparing a story like pippin to a a show like strange loop is really interesting because it's the same thing usher is the only character in strange loop strange loop so it follows the same sort of like there's these voices around this person who's going through an arc and that's, you know, when that, that we have to be very conscious about who, who, how we, how we frame an everyman, like what is neutrality? And if I, you know, ask that question 900 more times, <laughs> just what is neutrality? And that's, that's, you know, that's the question that I ask anytime I'm working in sort of, I do, I, I, I do what I call diversity dramaturgy, which is like, I basically consult with teams that are not diverse in any way. And I'm like, okay, so here's here's how you're using bodies right now in your show. I basically am very focused on the ways in which bodies are used on stage, not just the words that that characters say, but like what 
are the bodies you're putting in because i i would basically say that bodies are like words and they mean different things in different contexts and different words mean different things in different contexts and your your job as a writer is to contextualize the words you're using so a lot of what i say is like a, a big question is like what do you think neutral is like what do you what do you think neutral is what do you and like just asking that question over and over and over again and trying to push back on on people's sort of like easy acceptance of their sense of like this is what this is what you know the most most audience this is what your wide audience going back to that that literal in the definition of every man you know it's benign conduct fosters the audience's wide identification with them so it's like it's not just the benign conduct that that fosters that it's actually the literal body that this exists in and we're just so accustomed to one version of that well let's move on to the next section which is why is this so good and we're going to be talking about many a new day from the musical oklahoma so why did you pick this song for why is this so good when people you know i i have like my favorite shows and my favorite scores and so on and so forth but whenever anybody asks like what my favorite musical theater songs are i many a new day is always like very close to the top of my list if not the top largely because i just like really like the song like for some reason i just really enjoy it and what's really wild about many a new day is that i actually don't have a version of it in my head beyond the version that I'm singing in my head. Not that I'm personally singing, but like the version that's in my head. I, it took me, you know, I, I, I don't like Oklahoma particularly. So I've never really seen a, it, it never really like did anything for me. But for some reason, the song Many a New Day is always like my favorite thing in the world. And, and as I, you know, I, because I keep coming back to it, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about like, why? that is and i and i i really think that it's it's a number of things first off the, the character laurie as a character is really crazy like not crazy like insane crazy like the fact that she is what how she is written is like really interesting because laurie is not an ingenue really like she doesn't she's cast as an ingenue all the time by which when we when i say ingenue we of course mean like the sort of like frilly romantic character who's like thinking about romance and you know going through a sort of very simple like falling in love and falling out of love arc and laurie isn't really that at all she's actually deeply uh complex and like sort of like not what you think she is and i think that that's part of what many a new day why i find many a new day so interesting because like a lot of times it's played like the entire thing is a lie not like a lie in like but, but that that like the truth of this the, the moment is that Lori actually just really desperately wants to fall in love and she's just saying no i'll never fall in love and i'm like i actually think she's telling the truth like this is literally the truth of this moment and what's funny is that the sort of second reason that i really enjoy this is that it actually for me is a big disproving of like the way that musical theater songs are assessed right we, th we tend to like say things about musical theater songs where you're like i this character needs to go through an arc 
during this song and she like they should begin someplace and they should like have a discovery and they should end some other place and i think that that is all true but i think that's really actor focused like an actor has to do that in a song but the way that a song structurally operates isn't really that like many new day she is saying the same thing at the beginning that she is saying at the end which is like why should a woman who is healthy and strong blubber like a baby when her man goes away end of song many new day will dawn before i do that like it is all one sentence and you can you can play there's an arc to play in it but it's actually very it's like a real single like as far as like an it's like an aria which is she's like here's the truth bye like and what's funny is that i actually think that that actually applies to most musical theater songs that like really great musical theater songs don't actually the them going to an arc isn't the responsibility of the writers to write an arc into it so much as it's like the responsibility of the entire team to understand how that song functions in an, in a in the medium that we're working in so that part of it many days also what part of the reason that i like point to it is that i'm like it actually is a really obvious example of a good musical theater song that doesn't go through an arc there isn't there's nothing happens in that song and that's actually okay and in fact good sometimes that that happens because again we're learning about this character and this is all to sort of go to the end of this which is where part of the reason that i have no recordings of it in my head is because laurie is always played like a refraction of a ingenue and actually one of the things that i think this this most recent revival one of the reasons that i liked it there's a i have a really complicated relationship with that revival and in as a whole one of the things that I really, really liked about it was actually Rebecca Naomi Jones's performance, because for me, this was the first time that I'd ever seen somebody play Laurie really exactly how I think Laurie is written, which is like, what we forget is that when Oklahoma was written, the audience would have experienced that character very differently than how we experience that character now. That character is shockingly body and she, she's like so cares so little for like the trappings of womanhood. She and Aunt Eller literally own this, the homestead, right? Like they're, they together run this farm. We're all, we all sit here and we're like, oh yeah, women don't, you know, they didn't have the right to vote until 19... We end up in these like weird state where we like think about women's rights and like women like the things that women could or couldn't do as being very specifically associated with again their relation to every man so their 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 separation from the every white man is the primary experience of womanhood but then you like look at these stories and you look at the story of oklahoma and you look at this moment and it's like she's like literally she like rolls out and she says that is not my experience of myself and it's not my experience of the world why should a woman who is healthy and strong blubber like a baby if her man goes away? A weepin' and a wailin' how he's done her wrong. That's one thing you'll never hear me say. Never gonna think that the man I lose is the only man among men. I'll snap my fingers to show I don't care I'll buy me a brand new dress to wear I'll scrub my neck And I'll brush my hair
face will please my eye Many a new love will find Never have I once looked back to sigh Over the romance behind Many a new day will dawn before I do And then it's also beautiful, like the actual song is just like awesome. Yeah, and I just love in the music that figure that many a new da 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 da. Oh yeah, yeah, every time. And I love actually like from a musical assessment th- that actually each time it appears, it it's weird I, that the song took me a long time to memorize. Uh, like many because every time that figure happens, it's actually relates to the chord structure around it slightly differently. So like. You get the every time we get that. There's like two that are the same, and then they're each different. And then before I do goes. Never have I chased the honeybee who carelessly controlled me. Somebody else just as sweet as he cheered me and consoled me. And then the entire thing like shifts that. It, so I can really nerd out about this song for a really long time. Like each, every time that that, that phrase appears and... And again, it goes back to all of these things that I've been saying, which is like in musical theater, this, these characters, she's not lying, right? I'm actually, I'm not, I'm not interested in that, the, the sort of traditional, there's like a female song in musical theater, especially in contemporary musical theater, that basically goes, a woman's like, I'm strong, but really what I, I'm really just lonely, but I'm strong. I mean, the sort of brilliant, the best version of this is in Giant, um, What's that song? Uh, oh, uh, he wanted a girl. Yes, he wanted a girl. And what's wild about that song is that, like, the way that it's structured makes it seem like she's like devastated that she's like not the girl. And yes, I'm very interested in that. Like, for an actor, I'm really interested in that. But from a storytelling perspective, I'm much more interested in a character who's like, this is just the truth of what's going on. And so you can see all of those colors. But the primary thing is like. He wanted this girl, and I'm not that. So that's sad for the audience, but it's not necessarily sad for her. And that's really, that, that writing that line is like very interesting to me as a whole, especially when it comes to like stories of empowering women on stage. You are listening to the podcast can't see me, but I am. I'm cringing. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I loved about the revival of Oklahoma and and Rebecca Naomi Jones's portrayal, I mean, also the the portrayal of, of everything in that revival was that it was never really about her picking a mate. But, and arguably the show has never actually been about that. That's the thing that's like, she's, it's, of all of the massive themes that you can sort of attack in Oklahoma, like which is like the farmer and the cowman should be friends, which is actually a really interesting notion in that context because we're basically taking these two very different ways of looking at the world and how you should engage with the world. The farmers being people who are like, we should cultivate the land and so on and so forth. And the cowboys being like, oh, I want to go and be an adventurer. And that it's, the show is actually saying both of these both of these ways of being in the world are, are awesome and necessary, but they're not actually mutually exclusive like they don't which is just a really interesting thing and that for me is like what that's quite literally 
Lori is a farmer and Curly is a cowman. So th- it's actually built into the story there. And then there's like this weird thing about about like tribalism and like the way that they're like we're together we think this thing and you know that creates the tragedy at the end which is like the way that they they do this sort of kangaroo court about Judd's death and they're like no it's fine and so there's all these things that happen in the show that are actually so much more in depth and complicated than this like beautiful like people will say we're in love people are like yes that's the song from Oklahoma that I love and I'm like that's like 16% of the show maybe because that that relationship isn't actually the point and like this doesn't even go into like the like fascinating dynamic between Ado Annie and Lori and Ado Annie and Lori and Aunt Eller and Aunt Ella versus Lori and Aunt Ella versus Curly like every every uh, relationship vector in that show is wild I mean I love you know everything you've said about this song um, but let's move on to our final section something wonderful just something uh current or upcoming in musical theater that we are excited about or want to give a shout out to yeah you know it's an interesting time to ask this question about musical theater specifically given that we are in the middle of a pandemic uh i with uh i i'm really one of the things i'm very excited about is the fact that people are actually willing to engage with these sort of big picture, big picture questions about diversity and the way that diversity shows up in storytelling. I think that's a really exciting notion and will, I think it's just a very cool thing that we live in this space, that that's a possibility. Um, so that's really exciting for me that we're, that people are willing and interested in having those conversations. I, also, I have a my my family, so I'm I'm one of the mem- I'm one part of the Saunders Collective. Which, if you are interested in what who we are and what we do, it's me and my siblings and my mom, uh, who is also my co-writer. When I write musicals, I work with my mom, um, and the Saunders Collective has some really disruptive ideas about how to make a musical happen, and we think that we have an idea that that could potentially make musical theater possible and be very exciting at the same time. So we'll see. That's I'm, I'm excited about that, but I can't really talk about it. So I'm like, uh. <laughs> but it should be, it should be, it should be something wonderful as it, very cool. as it happens. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Oh, also, you should. People should watch my vlog. My vlog is so dumb and so <laughs> weird. It's just me being a nerd. Excellent. So. Well, I will be it's, watching that. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at Scene2Song, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.